All right, so we began our series on understanding the biblical covenants two weeks ago. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to take a step back. It's been two weeks. You've had a lot of content. John gave four talks, the fourth of which you probably fell asleep in because many of you stayed up till 6.45 in the morning uh, at Fall Retreat. So I want to take a step back. I want us to begin to look at the story of Scripture kind of from a big, large level. And then I want you to see how that story unfolds through the biblical covenants, okay? And that also means that we're going to learn how to understand how to read our Bible. That's what that means. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning, learning how to read your Bible. So there's multiple things that we're doing. Not only are you going to learn about biblical covenants, but you're also going to learn how to read your Bible. And so that's where we want to begin. Often, when we come to the Bible, we read it like a mosaic. Anybody know what a mosaic is? We read it like a mosaic. All right, Noah. Yeah, yeah, or like uh, shards of glass or pieces of glass, and it's just kind of a mix and match, different colors, right, all kind of thrown together. It's pottery arranged in different ways, essentially made to look however you want. What? What's wrong with that? Ladies are like totally, yes, stained glass, right? So that are, yeah, those are shards of glass, the picture of Jesus behind me um, right up there. Who knew that that would get a shout out in an illustration in any kind of teaching uh, that would come out of this building. Amazing. There we go. Stained glass. There you go. That's an image of a mosaic. So you can, you can arrange that mosaic in any way that you want in order to create any kind of picture that you want. However, the Bible is not like a mosaic. It's not like a mosaic. We can't just arrange the books and the stories like pieces in whatever shape or way that we want. Right, to tell whatever story we want to tell or to have it say whatever we want to say. The Bible isn't like a mosaic. Instead, it's like a puzzle where all of the pieces of the puzzle are designed to fit together. And every time you do that puzzle, it gives you the same picture every single time. It's the same picture every time. Instead of rearranging Scripture to create our own meaning, we're to discern how God actually intends those pieces to fit together into the whole picture of the Bible. That's what we're doing this morning. When we read scripture like a puzzle, we begin to see that there is great diversity. So for instance, the Bible consists of 66 books written by nearly 40 human authors over nearly 2,000 years. It's divided into two main sections, old and new. There are two primary languages, third as well at times that we see, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It includes different types of literature and genres of literature, such as biblical narrative and epistolary literature, which is just letters, okay? A lot of diversity in the Bible, and yet in all that diversity, the Bible is ultimately one book written by one author telling one unified story centered on one major subject, and that is the person of Christ and the salvation that God offers to all through him. So in order to rightly understand our Bibles, we've got to understand how every part of Scripture is to be understood in relation to Christ. That's what we've got to be looking at, and that's what we've got to understand. As it's been said, the Bible reveals more than a picture for us to enjoy. It's not just a picture. Instead, it reveals a person for us to know. That's what we do whenever we come to the Scriptures. We want to know Christ. This morning, this way that we're going to do all this, that's what this is meant to do for you. It's to help you understand and know Christ. 
So we're going to consider how to read the Bible better by understanding how God structured his word according um, to how he moves his plan of redemption forward through the biblical covenants. All right. So I just want to look at the big story of the Bible. Okay. The big story of the Bible, many of you have seen this, this little plot arc. Some of you are probably like, Trey is obsessed with stinking plot arcs. And y'all know what a plot arc is, right? You took English in high school and maybe in college. Um, this is basically the story of Scripture. It's a plot arc, right? Every story has one. You've got, you know, an introduction, your setting and characters, okay? Well, there are four main movements throughout Scripture, okay? Four big kind of components to this plot of Scripture throughout the story. The first is creation. So we got creation, okay? What is creation? What happened to creation? I'm wanting you all. This is a dialogue, moving quickly. What's, what happened to creation? We're getting the big story of the Bible. Creation. That's exactly right. Uh, what, else did, what else did God do? Okay, man, okay, how did he create man? Okay, what did he, what, like what was, uh, what was his job description? What was man's job description? He's created in his image, and part of that image is to what? Be fruitful and multiply so that what? Yeah, fill the earth and subdue it so that God's glory would be manifested to the world. Okay, so they are to be fruitful, multiply, they're to fill the earth, um, and they're sub to subdue it. And in living in obedience to that, they're reflecting the very character and the glory of God. Creation. All right, now we've got the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, creation, the fall, um, Genesis 3. Okay, so now we've got attention in the text. What happens at the fall? Man sinned, okay? As a result, what happens? So man rejects God as ruler, okay? Man eject, rejects God as his, uh, his authority, and then what happens as a result of that? Death, okay? Everybody sins. So not only do we die physically, we die spiritually, and we are now living in sin. We're living under the curse where work of the ground is difficult, childbearing is difficult, everything is flat out difficult, so the, what each of these sections are teaching us is creation is telling us where did we come from. Fall, the fall is telling us what went wrong. Then you come to the climax and resolution right here in redemption. Right? So God doesn't just leave us here. God doesn't just leave us in our sin. What does he do? There is a plan to redeem a people for himself, to dwell among him in his place, right? Under his rule and reign receiving his blessing for eternity. So we have redemption. What's redemption? It's the climax of scripture. Jesus, okay, you're gonna have to explain a little more than that. If someone were to, if you were to tell somebody what redemption is, you know, obviously we say redemption is in Jesus, but what is it? Where did it begin? Where did that redemption begin? Where did it, begin, where did it start? There it is. Genesis 3.15, somebody shout it out. What is it? You better know Genesis 3.15. Yeah, so, so we get essentially what many call the first gospel in the scriptures, Genesis 3.15. Got to know that one, okay? 
this is the first promise where God promises essentially to reverse the curse, where from, from Eve, from the woman, God is going to crush the head of the serpent who tempted Eve in the garden um, and, and took the bait and plunged humanity into sin and under the fall, under the curse, okay? Right here, we, we get it like in one sense, an activation of this promise and this plan of redemption that will come, um, will come about ultimately through Christ, right, through his death and re- life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sin, to atone for our sin before a holy and righteous God. All right, so we've got redemption, essentially saying, what's the solution to this problem at the fall? God tells you in Genesis 3, 3.15, the rest of scriptures we're going to see this morning, in particular with Abraham, is going to find its fulfillment there in redemption. Okay, so that's the solution. But where is history going? Where is history going? It doesn't just end here. Where is history going? New creation. What's the new creation? Okay, it will happen at the new, yeah, second coming of Christ. He will, he will bring that about. He will bring that in. Yeah. What else? What's going to happen in the new creation? What's the point of it? Like, what's the point of all of this? Okay, to glorify God. All right, keep going. Yeah, the restoration of all things, right? Restoration of all things. All things will be made new. It is a new and a better Eden. That's what the new creation is going to be, known as the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, right? The goal and the end of God's promise to redeem a people for himself is the new creation where we are beholding his face, right? That's pinnacle right there, right there. That's where we are headed, where we will dwell with him in a place where there will be no more sin, there will be no more death, there will be no weeping, no, nothing of that. Every, all the curse will be undone, and there will be a new and better Eden, so to speak, in the new city. All right, so right here, we've got the story of Scripture, okay? This is the big overarching story, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Now, how that story is held together is ultimately found through the biblical covenants, okay? It's found in the biblical covenants. So down here, obviously... We have our covenant of creation, right? God's covenant of creation there in Genesis 1 and 2. You saw that with Colton two weeks ago. So we've got covenant, and understand, I'm going in order, like historical order of when these things happened. So I'm not kind of just throwing these covenants around. So you've got the covenant of creation. What is, and then, okay, so you've got covenant of creation, then you've got what right after that? Right after covenant of creation. Oh, crud. Need to, my bad. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm trying to keep it within this. Yeah, so you got Noah, right? Noah's next up. So you've got the fall. Yeah, so right here you've got Noah and the flood. So God's covenant with Noah. Then you move on. What's next up this morning? Abraham. That's right. So you got God's covenant with Abraham. After Abraham, what comes after that? Abraham's offspring, who are they eventually? Nation, Israel, there we go, God's covenant with Israel. The mediator or the person that that, that covenant comes through is ultimately going to be Noah, right? So you can, that, th- that covenant alone next week has like a thousand different names, so we're just going to call it God's covenant with Israel. So we've got Israel, and then the king of Israel eventually 
David, right, who points to a true and greater king, ultimately found in Christ, where we get what covenant? The new covenant. That's right. There you go. This story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, that story really kind of unfolds. It's upheld as like a backbone, and it unfolds that story through these covenants. So if we're going to understand that story, we have to understand how God relates to his people through the biblical covenants. Does that make sense? Everybody getting that? That's how it's going to happen. Today, we're looking at Abraham. That's where we're at. But we're not going to know how to move forward if we don't understand that right there. What this is showing us is that God is about a kingdom, right? He is about having a people in his place living under his rule and reign. That's what he's about, right? That's what his kingdom looks like. God and his people living under his rule and reign, receiving the blessing of his presence. That's, he's about a kingdom. That kingdom is ultimately going to come about through covenants, okay? It's going to... Un- It's going to unfold and show us what that kingdom is really going to look like until we eventually get to the new creation when all is made new. It's a new and better Eden. God's people, God's place under his rule and his reign. Covenants give focus and direction to the story from beginning to end. So what is a covenant? What's a covenant? What did we say two weeks ago? Our God is a relational God. Covenants are a way that he relates to us. But what is a covenant? Okay, agreements, okay. There are binding promises that are made. Is that a chosen relationship? Or are you like, gosh, I was just like forced into this relationship? I mean, yeah, it's rhetorical, right? Um, Yeah, it's a chosen relationship, right? Covenant is a chosen relationship. You've got an agreement between who? Two parties. It's not just one party. You've got an agreement between two parties that makes binding promises to one another. So a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. That's what it is. Um, Covenants are the means by which we structure relationships. Now, oftentimes when we think about structuring a relationship, we think about contracts, right? In our vocabulary today, contract is a lot more well-known, right? A relationship with a contract, though, is impersonal. So if I go up to sign a lease with Frisco. And, you know, I'm not going into that lease thinking like, man, I just, I want to, I want to pay my rent each month so that like I will make this, I will have a deepening relationship and fellowship with Frisco. I just want a greater relationship with Frisco, the academy at Frisco. This is an incredible place to live. It's absolute madness all the time, but I just want to, I want to enter into this relationship. No, that's silliness, right? You sign a contract because you need a roof over your head, and then they're going to provide it for a certain amount of cash. You make promises not to uphold the relationship. Rather, you just enter into the relationship. You sign the contract because you want the things that they're going to promise. I'm going to promise you that I'm going to provide you a roof over your head, but you got to pay me $1,000 in cash in order to have that roof over your head, which is ridiculous. On the flip side, you've got marriage which is a covenant. A husband and a wife enter into a covenant relationship where they make promises of lifelong loyalty and faithfulness to one another. And even if that word covenant is somewhat foreign in our culture, 
Everybody knows that when you enter into a marriage, it's not a business contract. Now, sadly, some people think that that way, right? But ultimately, it's not a business contract. I love how one author put it. He said, and this is important, I'm going to read it slowly. While a contract involves a relationship for the sake of obligations, as I just mentioned with Frisco, a contract involves a relationship for the sake of obligations, a covenant involves obligations or promises, commitments, for the sake of the relationship. Those promises that I'm making to my wife actually help our marriage, right? They deepen our fellowship. They deepen our love and our intimacy within that marriage whenever we uphold those promises together. That's what a covenant does. So what are the biblical covenants? There are six of them, as we just saw right here, that uphold and unfold the story of Scripture, right? Those six, covenant of creation, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, new covenant, this morning we're looking at Abraham, all right? So let's recap the first two. I want to look at covenant of creation and Noah before we even get to Abraham, because you have to see where this thing is going. Two weeks ago, you've slept since then, right? You and I both know it. And so we need to recap what Noah went over. So just shortly, I want to get at God's covenant of creation and his covenant with Noah. So though the word covenant isn't ultimately used in God's covenant of creation, um, until actually God's covenant with Noah, we get this idea of covenant or the elements of a covenant uh, from Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, where um, God is speaking, speaking of like Adam actually breaking that covenant. Back, that God is basically speaking of his people breaking his covenant like they did in Adam's day or like they did in Adam's time, Hosea 6, 7. So though we don't get the word, all the elements are there for a covenant. And so God creates mankind in his, image, in his image, places him in the Garden of Eden, gives him a job description, be fruitful, multiply, rule over God's creation on his behalf. They represent God to the world in as much as they do what he's commanded them to do. They display his character. They display his glory by being fruitful and multiplying, spreading that image out across the dry lands as the waters cover the sea, and then they subdue the earth. God's image is going forth, and they are ruling over it. If they obey, they're going to be blessed. They're going to enjoy life. If they disobey, sadly, which is what happens, they're going to live under the curse and die. Obviously, we know what happened. As a result, sin, death, and condemnation come to mankind. The world lives under the curse. But God, by his grace, promises to redeem us from the curse of sin and death in Genesis 3.15. The redemption is going to ultimately come through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That's where it's going to come from. God has promised us that. Second, God's covenant with Noah. So we got our covenant with creation, right? God creates man, enters into relationship with man. Do these things. In that way, you're going to reflect my glory and my image throughout the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. God commands Adam to not take of the fruit of the tree of the Garden of Eden. He does, plunges everybody into sin. God promises redemption, Genesis 3.15. Then we get God's covenant with Noah under sin. A couple chapters later, things go from bad to worse. Sin is as widespread as the world is the flood, ultimately, as God judges mankind with a global flood because of sin. Yet he saves one righteous man and his family, and that is Noah. He commands Noah the exact same thing that he commanded Adam, which is what? And we're actually doing this in our Bible studies this next week, oddly enough, and I preached on this last year. 
What does he, pro- or what, uh, what does he command Noah? Be fruitful, multiply. Y'all, it's the same thing he does with Adam. Noah is literally just a new Adam. It's like a recreation. That's what it is. Genesis 8 and 9, God's covenant with Noah. It's just a recreation. So he says, be fruitful and multiply. Rule over the world that I have, that I have now given to you. You're all that's left, you and your offspring, Noah, because I've wiped everybody else out because of sin. And so he enters into covenant with Noah. He will preserve the world. And what's just fascinating is that God promises to preserve creation in order to redeem it. This is often called the covenant of preservation. That's important. Meaning that God gives the promise not to destroy the world again or to bring a flood upon it. The sign of that promise is what? Rainbow, right? Not just a lucky charms passage, but this is a rainbow, which is a sign that in the clouds, when he sees the rainbow, God is not going to flood the earth again. The reason for that is for redemption. God preserves creation in order to redeem it. And if you really want to get into human government, oh, it's a fascinating passage, Genesis 9 is. Because now God's going to actually use government. I think y'all talked about this two weeks ago. God uses human government as a platform for redemption. It can't redeem you, but it's got to preserve life in order that it may be redeemed. Does that make sense? That's why we want justice, right? That's why it ought to uphold justice. That's what a government's to do. Um, All right, although this covenant with Noah doesn't provide us with redemption, it actually preserves creation in order for God to redeem it. God is not going to destroy what he promised to redeem. Unfortunately, the one that we thought would bring redemption, Noah, actually gets drunk in his own garden and sins in his own garden, his own vineyard, and then curses his son Ham. Clearly, salvation is not going to come through Noah. Things have not changed, and they only get worse. Man tries to build a na- make a name for himself. They build a tower, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, right before Genesis 12 with Abraham, right? There, man is trying to build its own kingdom. God is about having his own kingdom, and man's over here trying to like gather everybody out rather than being fruitful and multiplying and spreading out. Man is trying to build its own kingdom. Sadly, we're left again wondering how God's going to reverse the curse, restore the world to himself through the offspring of the woman. That answer comes through Abraham and his offspring. That's where it's coming from. Point number three on your handout right there. Number three. God's covenant with Abraham. So part of what we want to do, um, yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. So by Genesis 12, God allows the nations to exist in order to call a man out of the nations to make him a great nation, to make him a kingdom. And that man is Abram, whom God renamed Abraham. In order to understand the rest of the story, we've got to understand the promises of God given to Abraham. As one English pastor put it, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Literally, you cut the Bible, it's going to bleed Abraham. That's what he's getting at. And three main promises that make up God's covenant with Abraham are what? They are people land and blessing. If there is anything you come away with on the covenant of Abraham, I would hope by the end of it you understand people, land, and blessing. People, land, and blessing. People, land, and blessing. I'm going to annoy you this morning. Okay? Got to understand that. And I want us to see how those three promises of people, land, and blessing get emphasized over and over and over again with Abraham. So the, ch- the passages that we're going to look at, 
And it's gonna, he's going to emphasize it over and over again. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Later, he makes the same promises to Isaac and Jacob, right? That's later. Okay, so not only does he give the promises to Abraham, he's also going to give it to his offspring, as we'll see. And we're going to focus on those four right there this morning. I want you just to look at Scripture, and I want you to see in Scripture how God is unfolding this plan. So what we want to do is we want to look down at the text. Part of what we're trying to do this morning is teach you how to read your Bible. The first thing you've got to do is just look down at the covenant itself. You've got to look at what it says, and that's what we're going to do in this first point. Um, so look down. So someone read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, looking down at the text to see what it says. Okay, so right here we don't have the word covenant given. All the elements of the covenant, right, are there, much like the covenant of creation. All the elements are there that we're going to see in 15 and 17 because we see these promises repeated. So what do we notice from this text? Just look at the text. What do you notice? Yep. Mason? Say it again. Okay. It's a sacrifice, right? He's got to leave his family. He's got to leave his kindred. He's rolling to a land he doesn't even know about. Good. I think it shows you that God also called Abraham. Abraham didn't earn these promises, right? It's not because he had a killer TikTok account or because he was from a well-off family from the Dallas area, right? That's not Abraham, okay? No, Abraham was worshiping other gods, Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans, wherever that is, right? And ultimately, it's in yeah, modern-day Iraq. But anyways, <laughs> that's where Abraham was from, right? He's like, you know, God calls him. It wasn't because of anything he did, and we're going to see that later. What else? What else do we notice? Good, okay, show me, show me from the text. Let's, let's look at those verses. Just show me where they're at. Okay. Yep. People, good, yep. And that people will ultimately be a political entity known as Israel, a national entity. We're going to look at that next week. How does that work out? Good. So people, land. That's right. So he's going to bring, yeah, and, and ultimately, um, right there at the end, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right, so it's going to be, God promises that through Abraham he's going to bless the nations. Okay, so you see people, land, and blessing. Later in verse 7, God tells Abram, Abram that he's going to actually give him the land of Canaan, and he's going to give it to his offspring uh, later in chapter 12. Good. So we saw people, great nation. We saw land, Canaan. We saw in verse 3, blessing to the nations. Now let's read Genesis 15, 1 through 7. We're just popping along. Genesis 15, 1 through 7. Someone read that.
Okay. So what looks like a picture from Lion King in some sense, right? Where Mufasa brings Simba out. Look at the stars, you know. And he, or, no, was that, was that Mufasa? Good. All right. Making sure. Um, God brings Abraham out to count the stars if he can count them. Okay? What's going on? What do you see in the text? Show me from the text, right, what we're talking about right here. What do we see? Okay. What else do we see? Where do we see these promises? Abraham's 75 years old when he leaves his land. To come to the land of Canaan. 75 years old. God tells him, what, what, is the, what do the stars have to do with anything? You can shout these answers out. What are they? His descendants, right? People. Okay, we get people. Your descendants, your people are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, if you can even count them, which you can't. That's how numerous they're going to be, right? And how do you think he would respond to those promises? How does he respond? We're going to talk about this in a minute. How does he respond? Okay. What does it say in the text? Verse 6. Believe the Lord. What did God do? Salvation's always been by faith. It's always been by faith. He believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. How did he get his right standing before the Lord? Well, ultimately, God counted it to him through faith, right? It's always been about faith. Verse 7, God tells Abram he's going to give him land that he promises him. Abram asks how he can know that for sure, and God answers that question by holding a covenant ceremony, which is downright fascinating. We're not going to go into all the details, but essentially this is what happens. Both parties normally in a covenant ceremony bring out animals. They cut the animals in half, they line them up, and then both parties will walk through that line of, of animals, okay? And what they're saying is, do this to me, what we've done to these animals right here, if I don't uphold this covenant. And so bar both parties have to uphold the covenant. What happens later whenever Abraham is asleep? Who enters through the middle of those cut-up animals? God does, stating that basically God's going to uphold both sides of the covenant. Abraham's asleep, right? And so God is going to uphold both sides of the covenant. He is the one... Uh, that is going to redeem. And so God alone will keep his, his promise by his own commitment to do so. This teaches us that God's promises ultimately rest on his faithfulness, not on Abraham's faithfulness. That's what that teaches us. In 1518, he says that on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So we've got land, we've got offspring. Next up, Genesis 17. God reestablishes his covenant with Abraham at the age of 99. 99. Someone read Genesis 17, 1 through 8.
Okay, what do you see? Just tell me what you see in the text. Where do we see the promises again? Yeah, that's what Abraham means. Father of a multitude. He's going to be a father of a multitude of nations. People, okay? Promise of people. What else? Also, quick little note right there. Don't miss the word kings in verse 6. Kings are going to come from Abraham. That's important, right? Because we're going to see with David on into the new covenant who is, you know, king of kings ultimately in Christ. So don't miss that. Verse 8, God reaffirms his promise of what? Land. Canaan, right? Notice that this covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant and the land will be an everlasting possession, which we will eventually get to in our final point on application. What else? Anything else? I think it's also interesting to notice circumcision right here. God gives Abraham a sign by which, to keep, by which he would keep the covenant, and that sign is physical circumcision. Circumcision marked off Abraham's children outwardly from the world as a sign of devotion to God. And so any who would not be circumcised would be cut off from the people of God. Okay? This was circumcision, physical circumcision in the Old Testament was how people knew they were Israel, or ultimately knew they were descendants of Abraham. They were the people of God. We are devoted to the Lord. All right, so finally, let's look at Genesis 22. We will come back to circumcision in a minute. Let's look at Genesis 22. Genesis 22, incredible story. I'm going to summarize it. There's no way we got time to read through all of it. I would encourage you to go back and read this. Man, if there ever was a picture of the gospel, uh, it's going to be right here. Genesis 22. So eventually God provides Abraham with a son. His name is Isaac. And the promised hope of redemption is to come through him. Yet in Genesis 22, God commands Abraham to go and sacrifice his son on an altar as a burnt offering. Just wild. But how could God keep his promise if Isaac is dead? Right? Is this not the one, right? Eliezer of Damascus ain't it. Isaac is supposed to be it. This is the one. The hope of redemption is going to come through him. And you're telling me I need to go sacrifice my son. How is God going to keep that promise? In this chapter, God puts Abraham's faith to the test. Abraham goes up the mountain with his one and only son, Isaac. You may know that language, right? Sound familiar? In order to sacrifice him to God. As Abraham is lifting up his hand to slay Isaac, angel of the Lord tells him to stop. Now I know that you fear God. Verse 12. Sure enough, Abraham looks up sees a ram in a thicket, what do you know? The Lord provides an alternative sacrifice in place of Isaac. So Abraham, in verse 14, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Abraham, once again, believed and obeyed God, right? His belief was shown in his obedience to offer up his one and only son. That's what that reflects. And you get that in the book of James as well in the New Testament, but we won't get there this morning. So God reaffirms his promises to him, in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 22. Someone read 22, 17 through 18. I'll read it just to move quickly. How about that? Um, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, offspring, people, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Blessing, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay? So once again, we're seeing this 
this repetition of these promises. Offspring or people as numerous as the stars of heaven. Offspring, uh, through his offspring, the nations are going to be blessed. And then lastly, the promise of salvation will come through Isaac because Isaac can't, well, ultimately, Isaac won't be able to save. Instead, God's going to provide a savior instead of Isaac. That's what that passage in Genesis 22 points forward to. So God will provide it. He will provide the sacrifice. Um, that's what the ram in the thicket points toward. So people, land, blessing. Those three promises summarize God's covenant with Abraham, and God confirms these promises with Abraham's sons, right? with Isaac in Genesis 26, and then with Jacob in Genesis 28. He just reconfirms those. All right, these promises only make sense if we see what came before. So we look down, we read our Bibles, we look at the covenant itself. Now we need to look back and see how the covenant of Abraham actually progresses what God said before. So point two, we look back. Consider the land promise first, okay? Consider the land promise. I want to look at those three promises again, land, people, blessing. Adam and Eve dwell in God's presence in his land. Eden. They were at rest with God there. Due to their sin, God kicks them out of Eden. God's covenantal presence and human sin can't dwell together. There must be a payment for sin. Life outside the garden is extremely hard during Noah's day. God wipes the land clean of sin, of the sin of mankind by the flood. Rather than rejecting Abraham from his land, God actually promises Abraham a piece of it a place where Abraham can grow in greater fellowship with God, and that land, though partially fulfilled later on, will find its final fulfillment right here in the new creation. That's where that land promise is going. If we don't go all the way there, we haven't gone all the way yet. We haven't gotten to its fulfillment. And ultimately, Abraham would look forward to that day, which we're going to see. Next up, the promise of people. Back in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, God promises that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So we get this idea of offspring or people. Originally, we thought that would be Noah. Noah failed. However, in God's promise of offspring to Abraham, we now know where to look for the one who's going to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. It's going to come from the offspring of Abraham. We're going to find out more about that in a minute. The nations of the earth would ultimately be blessed through that offspring. So we get the promise of blessing. God creates Adam and Eve. He blessed them. And he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Then you come to Noah. He blessed him. Genesis 9, chapter, sorry, Genesis 9, verse 1. God blessed him. Be fruitful and multiply. Same thing. Same thing with Abraham. Right? It's as if Abraham's a new Adam, so to speak. A new Noah. And yet now we see where redemption is going to come from. God blesses him, and not only blesses him, he's going to bless the nations through him. God is about having a people in his place, under his rule, in reign, and that's going to come through Abraham's offspring. So when we look ahead in the story, we've looked down, we've looked back at where we've come from, and now we're looking forward to where we're heading. So we need to look ahead in the story to see every element of the story of the gospel. And I think there are really six themes that we see later in the story whose footprints we can trace back to Abraham. That's what we're looking at in our final point right here. We're almost done. Bear with me. I'm telling you, the length is worth the reward. Point one, God's gracious election. I would get acquainted with that word election. I know it often gets a bad rap, but I would get acquainted with it. It's all over Scripture. As we saw in Genesis 12, God chose Abraham by grace, not because Abraham was a boss. Okay? 
That's not why. In fact, as we read in Joshua 24, Abraham worshipped other gods. He wasn't righteous. There wasn't anything in Abraham to make God like, yeah, I want to I choose that guy. Even after receiving God's promises like Noah, Abraham sins in big ways. You can just go read Genesis to find all the ways that Abraham sins. Yet the story of Abraham is a reminder that God's salvation is ultimately by grace. He chooses Abraham by his grace. What does grace mean? What does grace mean? Yeah, undeserved favor, undeserved gift. It's unmerited. You can't earn it. Abraham didn't do anything to earn that grace. Just like Noah and Abraham, God chooses us by grace, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because, man, we were, we were great in God's eyes that he decided to send his son for us. No, we were still sinners. It's all by grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, 16 through 17, you can just write that reference down and go back to it. Wonderful reference about Abraham's calling. He says this, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. It may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith, that have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. If you're a believer, if you're a believer, God's election of you ought to leave you in awe. It ought to leave you in awe when you look at your life. You were dead. He made you alive. He called into existence what did not exist spiritually in you. He made you alive spiritually. And that is all of God's grace. The only right response to God's gracious election is praise. That's the only right response. And so I just want to encourage you, if your heart isn't there, and a lot of people's aren't, if your heart is not there, I would say go back and behold the wonder of God's gracious election, that it was nothing right, that you had done to earn it, but it was solely the gracious gift of God. It ought to leave us in awe. We ought to praise God for that because we didn't earn it. Point number two, justification by faith. By justification, I mean God declaring you right in his sight. That's what I mean. God declaring you right in his sight. God declaring you righteous before him or just before him. Meaning that when he lands down that verdict from his bench, from the judge, you know, from the judge landing down that verdict, it is not guilty. Whereas we are guilty because of sin, but he declares us not guilty. So as we've seen with Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden and the world being swallowed up by the flood in Noah's day, only a holy and righteous God can dwell with the holy people. And so we can't dwell in his, in his presence because of our sin. God requires perfect obedience. So how can we have right standing before God? We stand righteous before God by grace through faith in his promises. Where did we see that with Abraham? Anybody remember? Say it again. 15, right? What does he do? He looks up into the stars, right? And then what does he, he believes? God counts it to him as righteousness. It's always been about faith. Earlier in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, you can just write the reference down. Paul says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, right, a gracious gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous, the ungodly, right, the ungodly, us, his faith is counted as righteousness. We're declared to be just. We're declared to be righteous by faith in Christ alone. No amount of good deeds, no amount of good will or good intentions or good vibes, right, is going to save us, is going to justify us before God. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, recognize that you stand before God condemned. You stand before him condemned and deserving of judgment because of your sin. And yet you can be justified by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. What are you relying upon to make you right before God? What are you currently relying on? And will it only lead to destruction? That's what you've got to ask yourself. God is showing you the way. It's ultimately through faith in Christ alone. Now, point number three, salvation by substitution. If God declares us just by grace through faith, then how can God do that given that we still sin? How can he do that since we still sin? Abraham sinned. All his offspring sinned. My word, just go read the scriptures. They're all sinners just like us. As we saw in Genesis 22, God provides the alternative sacrifice, a substitute in place of Isaac. Author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, just write down the reference, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God, and this is the important point right here in verse 19, Hebrews 11, he considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. Incredible. The story of Genesis 22 reminds us that ultimately it's God that provides the right substitute, the proper substitute to pardon sin. I cannot go and offer myself as a substitute for any of you. That's a paltry substitute. But God provides the right one, the proper one, and that's Christ, the very Son of God himself, the one and only perfect Son, the beloved Son. God provides the substitute. Nothing is good enough except God's own Son. So what substitute are you ultimately looking to in this life to pardon you before God? What better substitute can you honestly have than the very Son of God himself, right? If God did not spare his own son, how, can, how is he not going to ultimately give you everything? Romans 8. Four, heart circumcision. As we saw in Genesis 17, God gave circumcision to Abraham and his children to distinguish them from the nations around them. Circumcision was a visible and a graphic sign that we belong to the Lord. That's what it said. However, this physical reality pointed to an even greater spiritual reality. To be fully devoted to God, we need more than just a cutting of the flesh. We need more than that. As we see later on, not all of Abraham's physical children by birth actually belong to God's people. There is Isaac and there is Ishmael. Isaac is the one that the promise is coming through. There are those who ultimately believe God and those who don't in the camp of Israel among God's people. Rather, as Moses reminded God's people later on in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, they needed hearts to be transformed by God. That's what they needed. But how is God going to do that? Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 11, just write the reference down. In Christ also, he's talking to believers in Colossae, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's not physical. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
Jesus is the one who circumcises the hearts of those who have faith in him. And so the true offspring of Abraham and people of God are those whose hearts have been circumcised in Christ by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 2, 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but it's from God. True people of God, true offspring of Abraham, undergo a, certain, a true spiritual circumcision through faith. Number five, offspring of Abraham. So as we've seen, God's going to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham and his offspring. God's purposes of redemption are global. He is not a tribal deity. He is a global God. Paul says in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's what's happening. Not only Genesis 3.15, but also in the promises of God to Abraham. The gospel is being preached, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul follows that up a couple verses later in verses 16 and 26 through 29. Listen closely. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Christ is the true offspring of Abraham and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Those who are united to Christ by faith, no matter what ethnicity that you are, you are the offspring of Abraham. Think about that. When Abraham was counting the stars, like Simba, when he was counting the stars, ultimately he was counting you. You do recognize that. Now, he wasn't saying, like, Ashton Mooneyham, you know? Like, he wasn't, like, that's not what he was doing. But that's what he was doing in some sense. He was counting you, right? As numerous as the stars, that's how your offspring will be. If you're in Christ, you're the offspring of Abraham. You're a part of the purpose and the plans of God, of redemption, of having you for himself in his presence, living under his rule and reign, the blessing of his presence. He's counting you. Number six, looking to the heavenly city. Final point, we're done, all right? I know I've kept you. As we saw with the promise of land, it was the installment of an everlasting, this was an installment of an everlasting possession, as we're going to see with the new creation. Yet that land, it pointed to something greater. It pointed to the new creation. The author of Hebrews speaks to this as it relates to Abraham in Hebrews 11, verses 9 through 10. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, Canaan, as in a foreign land. Clearly it was foreign from Chaldea or Iraq. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. Why did he do that? 75, the guy up and leaves his heritage and goes to a foreign land that God told him to go to. Why did he do that? Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The city that Abraham looked forward to, as it says in Hebrews eleven sixteen, 16, is a better country, 
It's a heavenly one. That's what he is looking forward to. The land in Abraham's day was marred by sin still. God exiled his people out of the land later on. Got other nations to come in and take them out. He vomited, literally, that's what it says. He vomited them out of the land. And yet, when Christ returns, we're made new creations, and we are being fit for the new creation, new heavens and new earth, with God for eternity. He wasn't looking for another land like the one that he inhabited. He was looking for a better one, one where there would be no more sin, where there would be no more death, right? where we will dwell in the presence of God and behold his face. That's the high watermark of Christianity, beholding God that you may become like Christ, and we will dwell in his presence forever. That's our hope, and it shapes how we live in the present like those waiting for summer to begin rather than for summer to end. We are waiting eagerly in hope of Christ's return whenever we will be taken into the new heavens and new earth. That's what we look forward to. It's a better possession. It's a better land. All right, that's it. That's a lot, okay? Hopefully that was helpful for you to see the covenant with Abraham, okay, and the unfolding and how these covenants unfold scripture, okay? They progress that story along and how it relates to Christ. Next week, we're gonna look at Israel, all right, let me pray. We're going to go. I think we're not going to do discussion groups this morning. Just hang out for a little bit, okay? Is that okay with you guys? All right. Let's just hang out and chill, maybe listen to some cool music. All right, let's pray. Father, we give praise to you uh, that by your grace and mercy, Lord, you have had a plan to redeem a people for yourself from every tongue, tribe, and nation in eternity past. And Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that you've provided the sacrifice, the substitute for us that is perfect, the one that we needed to pay for our sin. Lord, we praise you for that glorious truth that ultimately by faith, that by your grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can have this salvation and wait eagerly in hope of restoration one day when Christ returns and makes all things new. Lord, we look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.